delighted to welcome to the truth and rhythm mothership longtime lakeside multi-instrumentalist singer and composer otis stokes he played a central role throughout the funk and soul bands 1977 to 1990 recording career that produced nine top 40 r&b albums four of them reaching the top 10 lakeside's hits notable songs during that period include it's all the way live pull my strings from nine until the number one smash fantastic voyage your love is on the one the Beatles remake, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Something About That Woman, Raid, Turn the Music Up, and Outrageous. All but one of those are blistering funk jams. Stokes also worked extensively with other solo records acts and released a self-titled solo album in 1994. Otis, I'm truly stoked to have you on hand. How are you? <laughs> That's pretty good, Scott. I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well, doing well. So, good. you know, it'll be... Uh, a while before this posts and some time will have transpired mm -hmm. uh, but before we came on there was like this uh once in a millennial uh <laughs> thing of snow out there so that's pretty incredible maybe that's a, a harbinger of how special this uh day will be that we share together it's certainly a special day as i was uh, talking to you off the air that uh we had two two and a half inches of snow in uh, north fontana which is the flatland we're near mountains but we've never had anything like this it was actually like growing up in dayton ohio it's, it was amazing wow that's fantastic and you know as someone who grew up out there man that's i know how incredible that is Yes, it is. I was telling you earlier that it's probably going to be on the news. So I'm going to watch the news a little later and see how they covered it, because this is certainly something I've never seen. I can imagine how it shuts the roads and everything down out there. They're not used to that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a good thing I have nowhere to go today. I'm I'm going to stay at home and stay out of the snow because I know they don't know how, they don't know how to snow uh, uh, drive in the rain, let alone the snow. Exactly. So I, I'm happy I don't have anything to do today. Fantastic. I'm Outside so of my house can... anyway. I'm so glad you could join me. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to the viewers today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Actually, I've watched a lot of your work and you do a good job. I've seen a lot of your work. You do a good job. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, another Stokes was on recently. Arthur was on and yeah. uh, that show will run a couple weeks before this one. So, okay. you know, keeping it in the family here. Oh, no doubt. I'll definitely watch. Uh, he told me that he had done the interview with you and he was happy to do it. So he, you know, um, told me that you were interested in talking to me. I said, well, sure. Why not? So here I am. Well, as a Lakeside fan, you know, from It's All The Way Live onward, I much appreciate it. So looking forward You're to up. getting into it with you. And to start off, want to roll it back and talk a little bit about the very early years before we get a little more up to date. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, from Dayton, um, you know, how did you gravitate toward music? And, you know, how did you kind of pick up so many different instruments and things like that? Well, um, my oldest brother, Otha, um, 
who passed away in uh, 1999, he was a saxophonist. He was a great saxophonist. He played with a lot of different people from James Brown to Ray Gibbon and Brown and those kind of people. And he was part of the uh, uh, All Platinum game over there with Sylvia. Um, and they were kind of the... Uh, uh, the studio band for a lot of the stuff over there, including the uh, Sugar Hill Gang, they played on those records. So uh, he, I grew up hearing the stories of uh, musicians as a kid, and so it was like, and my other brother, Arthur, who you spoke with, he also was a singer. So hearing those stories always kind of uh, inspired me, and I was, I was always able to sing. Uh, I don't remember not being able to sing even as a young person, so I had talent, and, uh, so that was kind of what inspired me to, you know, start working as a musician and trying to get into the music business. I, I first started, um, uh, my first real instrument that I played was the guitar, and uh, Roger Troutman uh, gave me uh, my first guitar lessons, you, you know him, of Zap. And uh, I went to see him at um, uh, Wampler's, which is a place in Dayton, and it, actually they were, he was playing with the uh, the, uh, they were the young underground at the time. They weren't Lakeside, the High Lakeside Express yet. They were the young underground at the time. And so I met uh, Roger after the show and I said, man, you know, he did some amazing things with the guitar. He was playing through a Leslie cabinet and, do, you know, Roger was always super innovative. And so I asked her, I said, man, you know, would you be, you know, be able to give me some Leslie? He said, sure. So he told me to come out. He used to work at this place in Dayton called Sean Acres. It was an orphanage out on Salem Avenue. And he told me to come out there. So I started going out there about five in the afternoon after you know he had done his thing out there and he just started giving me lessons and um you know and i took it from there and the funny thing about it when we both you know became successful we were working together and and roger was like yeah you never did pay me for those guitar lessons <laughs> we never we never talked about money you he was just joking of course but uh that's the kind of guy he was and so from there i started uh, fooling around with different instruments. I, the second instrument I learned to play was drums because I was around a great drummer in Curtis Sanford who was with Platypus. And so I would, he would get mad at me because I would always get on his drums when we were uh, taking breaks. And then finally he left me alone. I guess he figured I was just trying to learn. And so he kind of helped me along. And then I picked up uh, the keyboard because I started playing. Uh, uh, I was going to uh, LA City College uh, Tamar McCain and I and Norman Beavers, when we were, had like a little break in the lakeside uh, thing, we went to there and took some classes. So I took some uh, theory and some basic piano things there. And I already kind of twinkled with it a little bit, but that's when I kind of learned a little bit about how to play. And uh, I, play, I started playing bass right before that because I just was interested in it being around it and I picked that up. And so that's kind of how it all started. I've been doing it ever since. Wow. And who are some of your, you know, you mentioned Roger, but who are some of your early influences and sort of musical heroes? Of course, Stevie Wonder. I uh, always saw him as a genius, which he was. Uh, I remember uh, Sugarfoot of uh, Ohio Players. Uh, he was a fantastic guitarist, and uh, he used to, you know, let us come out to his house, and he would show us things. You know, m myself and Larry Hines, who was the original gu guitarist in Platypus, who passed uh, in, in the late 70s. And uh, so we would go out there, and he would teach us stuff. And so there was just, you know, those were – and and being a singer first, I was inspired by Eddie Kendricks and Smokey Robinson because I sang falsetto. And so growing up, listening to the Motown sound and, 
all those kinds of things, you know, it just kind of um, uh, was inspirational to me. So I, I took a little bit from everybody in my own song styles uh, as, a, as a first tenor. What about in terms of, you know, performing skills? Do you know, did, was there someone that you saw early on that just really impressed upon you and you said, you know, I want to aspire to that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up uh, surprisingly as a rock and roller. I used to watch Rod Stewart and, and, and Mick Jagger and these these great front men, you know, who had this charisma and this this aura on them on stage and all those things inspire you because you know, I want to do that. I want to be that. I want to have that kind of personality and charisma on stage. So watching great performers. Um, also inspired you and you know again the, the the temptations was really the gold standard of singing groups and so we all kind of patterned ourselves after david ruffin eddie kendricks you know those guys because they were the gold standard so uh in dayton when we were growing up everybody had groups and most you know, singing groups so we all had the little tree microphones ours weren't as good as the, the temptations you know we we would make shift them there would be all kind of different ways we did it but we were trying to be like the temptations and have those things that made us look like professionals so it was it was a lot of competition in dayton ohio growing up with a lot of musicians who became uh successful in the music business from slave i went to school with steve arrington and and Sidel carter and those guys and um uh, of course, the Ohio players and, and, and Zap, Roger and Zap, and uh, Heat Waves from there, and uh, um, Sun, and some I'm forgetting, uh, but there's so many, many talented groups from Dayton, Ohio, who went on to be successful in the music business. Did you have a sense being in that environment, you know, even before Lakeside hit it, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, something was happening here? This is like something special with the way music was just permeating that Dayton region and, and funk in particular? At the time, no, because that was what we did. Instead of being in uh, gangs, we were in groups. And that was what was funny, you know, because there wasn't gang banging for the most of us, even though there was some element of that in Dayton, Ohio growing up. But most of us who had some kind of talent, we got in groups. And so there were competitions between the groups for the talent shows, the proms, all the local things that were going on. And so that was more what it was. It didn't really uh, occur to me or impact me until, you know, Lakeside went out to LA and we started hitting and then slaves started hitting and all the other and it was like god these guys we all grew up together there there is a a wealth of talent from this city that's when it began to really uh impact me and, and dawn on me how much uh, talent was in that city that I grew up in were the ohio players since they you know hit it first and hit it biggest really overall mm -hmm. uh you know was that kind of like um inspiration as well or was it oh, just sort of no doubt no yeah. doubt yeah because they were we called them the grandfathers because they were the first ones to hit and uh they had some local hits i don't know if you're familiar with pain was something that they had and, and trespassing those were local hits that they had when they were with i think it was westbound um records and so they are we always looked at them and the, and the thing about them and uh, uh uh zap they they never left dayton to uh make it big they stayed in dayton and they both made it successful out of dayton ohio everybody else went to new york la somewhere like that yeah well the ohio players you may or may not know were my first favorite band so oh really you know before i had any clue what dayton was because i was from los angeles you know mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, um, they were fantastic. And the thing about it, you know, before they really started having big hit records, their live show was was amazing. And I noticed when they made that transition because they got older, their live show wasn't as dynamic as it was doing the clubs back there and stuff. And I don't know what that was that made it. Maybe it was easier for them because now they had, you know, skin tight and fire and these huge records they had that they could go to and they didn't have to work as hard. I don't know if that was it or not but i just remember uh how how dynamic of a live band they were uh in dayton ohio growing up mm, man i would love to have seen that i wish there, wish there was footage you know yeah of, of I, I, I do too but you know back then nobody really had cameras and stuff but they were something else and i that's the one thing i noticed about the transition from you know doing clubs in dayton and around the area to hitting big and being a nationally known uh hit record group uh that they're seemed like to me the live show kind of suffered a little bit in my opinion mm. what were uh you know one or two of the early performing experiences that you remember that sort of uh were catalysts for you on your journey uh you know before lakeside really got known oh well we you know like i said we used to do a lot of talent shows here and uh this was a, i was in three different versions of this group we had back here called the bad bunch and this first version I was with was with Thomas Shelby, who was a member of Lakeside, and uh, we've been together for over 50 years. And it, it was him and myself and uh, two other guys, one was named Ron, Ronnie Jones, and the other was Dave David Turner. And we did a, um, a talent show at Dunbar High, which is one of the uh, 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 African American schools here, basically, in the, uh, not, I mean, not here, but in Dayton, in the Dayton area. And you would have thought we were the Jackson Five, uh, the way the people responded to what we did. We did three songs in a talent show. Of course, we won the talent show, but it was the screaming and the girls that really like, okay, this this is really what I want to do. And it was those, it was on a high school level, but that was the thing. When you saw people, girls reacting like that and the people responding to us the way they did, that was something I, I really wanted to have to be a part of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were the uh, steps uh, or, you know, events that transpired that led you to becoming part of Lakeside? Well, I actually came out to uh, L.A. with uh, Platypus. I used to work with them uh, as kind of their MC slash roadie, whatever needed to be done. And uh, they were self-contained, so I would do a little number uh, and introduce them. I usually would do like something like Superstition from Stevie Wonder, and then I'd bring, I'd bring out uh, the band. Um, and so that's where it started. Uh, we came out actually in 73 to Los Angeles, and Lakeside had come out in late 72. So we, of course, being friends, we were in uh, uh, contact with them and we were talking to the guys and man, you know, we're killing them out here, you know, and, uh, and you know, how you, you hear people say things, you kind of take it with a grain of salt, you know, they're like, man, we got people lined up around the corner. And we we're like, yeah, right, around the corner. So when we came out to uh, Los Angeles, and we went to Mavericks Flats, lo and behold, they had people lined up around the corner to see Lakeside and Mavericks Flats. And so I would go there, you know, we would see each other when we perform. We go to, you know, because Platypus played all the local clubs, including Mavericks. And something interesting, while I was watching 
uh, Lakeside and Mavericks flat one time, I remember seeing myself in the group and but I couldn't picture who I was going to replace because everybody there had their own little dynamic thing. You know, T. Meyer and Tommy were the choreographers. Mark was the mainly singer. Ricky Abernathy, who was in the group at that time, he, you know, was an amazing singer. And I couldn't see who I was going to replace. But uh, as it worked out, I replaced Ricky Abernathy. And I joined the band in 1975. And um that's where everything started. You know, we we began. They used to be called Sexy Soul uh, back in those days before I got with them because they did a lot of, you know, R&B type of stuff. And so when I got with them because I had a little rock background, that's kind of that, you know, the things we did in the rock kind of area musically, I, I like to think I had some influence on that. Now, did you already know all the guys in the group or you got acquainted with them when you joined in 75? Oh, no, I knew everybody in the group except uh, Big Fred. He was from Los Angeles, so I didn't meet him. He's the uh, percussionist. So I, he's the only one I, that we didn't know when we came out there. But uh, everybody else came from Dayton. So we knew everybody in the group because, like I said, we'd all had interactions together through the years. So, well, yeah, we, we knew everybody except Big Fred. So a very smooth transition to just get you into the mix at that point, sounds like. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What can you share with viewers about, you know, the talents and, and temperament of those guys that were in the band, you know, um, especially, you know, like Steve and some of these other cats. And we obviously have heard some of their talents, but maybe you don't know that much about them as guys. Uh, you know, it's it's a very, very diverse group of personalities in the Lakeside family. Um, and, you know, they're all over the place in terms of personalities. And so um, it's hard to describe everybody. Tommy's always Mr. Showman. He's always on, you know, he's got, you know, this personality that you warm to. And uh, he's always been like my big brother uh based on you know working with him early with the bad bunch and stuff like that steve uh was also uh, a, a guitar mentor of mine because i used to go to him and talk to him after shows and he would show me things on the guitar um and you know so he was very giving in that you know helping other musicians get better so that's one of the things i always liked about steve is very very uh, open Marvin, the bass player, I've known him since I was a kid because he and my brother were really good friends. So, uh, and I actually played in one of my first bands I played with, um, was, uh, I was singing actually, I wasn't playing, uh, instruments on the stage at the time, but I was singing with a, a group and Marvin was in the band and he wasn't playing bass at the time. He was playing guitar. So that's how far I go back with Marvin Craig that he was a guitar player. And actually I didn't realize when the transition from guitar to bass actually happened until he came out to LA and I, and he was playing with Lakeside because he, he replaced Vincent Beavers, who's really uh, Norman Beavers brother. Um, he replaced him. So I didn't know Marvin played bass until I came out here and saw him with Lakeside. Uh, as far as Norman is concerned, he and I knew each other from about 10 years old when uh, we were in one of the first bands together and, and he was playing keyboards then. So that's how far we go back. Uh, Mark Wood and I go back to Little League. I met him at Little League. 
uh, uh, when we were playing Little League Baseball and we ended up running each other. He was playing drums with this group at the time, probably about 14 or 15. And the next thing I knew, he was in the Young Underground singing lead. Uh, T. Myron McCain, um, he, he and I were fast buddies on the road. So we, we became really good friends because we both had these ridiculous senses of humor. And so, um, you know, we, we had a, we used to have a lot of fun. Um, uh, little Fred, uh, who came along around 77, uh, he was a different kind of guy. He was kind of a country guy, being from Dallas, Texas and everything, but he fit right in. And uh, Big Fred, of course, you know, he, big personality, just like he was, Big big Fred. We called him Big Fred because he was the biggest Fred. And uh, we had two Freds, so we had Little Fred, we had Big Fred. And actually, uh, one of the other things I was mentioning to you is that uh, Little Fred is actually the, the, the grandfather of all Lils because uh, I kind of, we used to call him Little Fred, like everybody, like you had Little Anthony, Little Richard. And so, one uh, time when I was doing credits, because we called him Little Fred and, and Big Fred, I wrote it as Lil, L-I apostrophe L. And so to me, he, that makes him the grandfather of all Lils because they say you have a, 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 over 2,000 Lils on Spotify now that are listed in the music business. And the reason I know it came from us is because I basically took it from Lil Abner. Do you remember the comic book character, yeah. Lil Abner? Yeah. Well, you remember he spelled his L-I apostrophe L. So that's mm -hmm. where I, I stole it from and, and started calling Lil Fred, Lil Fred. And now they've, they've, uh, omitted the, uh, apostrophe and now it's just L-I-L. So he's actually the grandfather of all, uh, Lils. <laughs> well, the hip hoppers definitely have some thanks, I think. Uh, yeah, they, they, they yeah. should thank me. Good, too, too bad he's not getting royalties. He'd be super rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big royalties for little Fred. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thanks for writing that down. I just appreciate it. Um, oh, no problem. So, uh, you know, early on, you guys made the acquaintance and actually, I guess, kind of fandom of um, Dick. Um, Dick Griffey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he kind of like mentored you guys. And uh, can you talk about that relationship and also uh, the record that you guys did that maybe some aren't aware that came before Shot of Love? Oh, yeah. Well, well, Dick Griffey was our manager. He, I got with the group in 75. And not long after I got in the group, Dick uh, wanted to manage us. He would come up to uh, to Mavericks Flats and the clubs where we play around in, in Dayton. And he had been courting us for a while. He said, you know, you guys need a manager, blah, blah, blah. And he was willing to, you know, spend money on us and all that kind of stuff and help us, you know, get along the way. So, you know, we, we took him on as a manager in 75. And, you know, he got us our first uh, van that we could have transportation and, and equipment that we needed. You know, he was a good guy. So, you know, he also helped us do some bookings at the time, and he was just trying to guide us in the right direction. So we um, ended up working with him, and and when we met Frank Wilson, who had also seen us in a club, and he wanted to sign us. Dick didn't want us to sign with him because he didn't think, you know, it was a good deal. But we were anxious. We were ready to begin some kind of recording career, and there were no other offer, offers on the table at the time. So um, we went with uh, 
Frank Wilson, and we signed with what he uh, called Spec O Light Productions, and uh, he had been, you know, a Motown producer for many, many years. Uh, he produced the Supremes, the Temptations, uh, Four Tops. Uh, uh, Steel Waters is one of the biggest songs he did on uh, Four Tops, and he was one of those, you know, Motown products. So we were happy to you know, be signing with him because of who he was. And we figured, you know, he would, you know, uh, be able to get us hits. But the problem was this, um, Frank had his own style of doing things. He had his staff writers. He had uh, the the uh, studio musicians that he was used to using. In fact, he used, you know, top guys, a uh, 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 Side note here is Paul Jackson Jr. was 16 years old. He played on our first record. This was when he was first getting into the studio musician game. And uh, you know what he's gone on to do in his career. But he played on our very first album. We had guys like uh, uh, Jerry Peters and uh, Michael Bodiger. And these were all the guys that he was calling on to do tracks and everything and his staff of writers. But what ended up happening, um, he did his version of Lakeside. And uh, even though we, we didn't get a hit off of, we had a little local hit with uh, the single, If I Didn't Have You, which is really a great uh, ballad written by uh, John Footman. And uh, we got a little noise on it, but it didn't do anything. And as a result, um, Dick, you know, wanted us to kind of get out. And so we, we amicably parted with Frank. And the one thing I will say about working with Frank, uh, what I learned from him as a producer and a songwriter is invaluable. Uh, in fact, we took him some of our uh, um, uh, tracks, you know, demos that we had done, and Frank just laid it on the line. He said, you know, you guys can't write. I mean, we, we were crushed, but the thing we didn't do after we licked our wounds, we kind of said, you know what? Maybe we can't write now, but we're going to learn how to write. We're going to prove them wrong. And so we used that as motivation uh, to to prove him wrong and say, yeah, we, we not, may not be writers now, but that doesn't mean we can't be writers. So with that, we began doing our own writing and woodshedding. And uh, after Dick got us out of the deal, then he talked to us about, uh, you know, coming to Soul Train Records, which eventually morphed, morphed into Solar Records, because Dick and Don used to own Soul Train Records, which they had hit with the early Shalimar, and I think it was Uptown Festival or whatever they had on that first record, which was a hit. And that kind of got it started. And then for some reason, Don didn't want to be in the music business anymore. So he told Dick, you know, he wanted out. So Dick bought him out and changed the name of the uh, record company to Solar Records. And so at the same time that all this was going on, Norman Whitfield, who had become, uh, you know, also left Motown and was doing his own thing with Whitfield Records. And I remember uh, you were talking to little Fred and he said it was uh, Fort Knox. Well, Fort Knox was Norman Whitfield's studio and Whitfield Records was his record company because he was distributed by Warner Brothers. So anyway, he, he was, again, and one of those guys used to come up the Mavericks and he wanted to sign Lakeside. So he told us, he had a meeting with us. He said, you know, I'm not going to give you guys any blood money. You know, I'm not going to give you this. I'm not going to give you that. What I am going to do is guarantee you a hit. And I'm thinking, well, you know, nobody can guarantee a hit. I don't care how great you are. And he had just come off of the Star Guard thing uh, the, the, from the movie and he, the car wash soundtrack, which was huge. And so he was hot. And so he thought, you know, well, 
And so we were talking about that. And I said, look, you know, when we were talking about it, I said, guys, I said, we just came out of a deal because he told us, you know, if you guys are on the road, you know, I'm not going to be waiting for you to come back, you know, and, and do the tracks. I'm going to do the tracks and the singers come back. So I said, that's the same thing we just left, you know, with Frank. I said, Dick is offering us an opportunity to be ourselves. He had guaranteed we could do at least half of the album. And if he didn't hear anything in there, he was going to put the other half on there. Just so happened that everything we wrote for that first album was ours and he thought it was good enough to be on the album. So um, we took, I said, if we're going to fail again, let's fail being Lakeside, you know, because we've already done that, you know, that kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, assembly line production that they do at Motown where, you know, this, this is how it happens. And we said, we, I, I said, I want to do that. So there were some guys that wanted to go with Norman, and I'm, but I think it was more of us, we decided we're going to go with Dick. And of course, uh, we had our first hit record with All The Way Live on that record. And there you go. The rest is, as they say, history. <laughs> wow, that's a fantastic, uh, fascinating story. Um, and God, such heavyweights you guys were, you know, dealing with, you know, and, and guys yeah. like Dick and 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 Whitfield and wow. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, and and, and legends. Me, oh yeah, and and let me just throw this in. Um, I watched Frank Wilson and Norman Whitfield, and uh, I had the pleasure of also uh, seeing uh, Hal Davis from Motown work and studying these guys, and of course, Leon Silvers. And I stole a little bit from each one of them in, in how I developed my own production style. But um, Norman, later on, <clears throat> after he kind of fell from grace, his uh, um, uh, engineer, uh, Lenard Jackson, may rest in peace, uh, became our engineer. And um, so Norman would be at the studio we were working on. I think we were working on at that time. It might have been uh, um, Untouchables at this time. But Norman would feel would be at the studio religiously every night. We were in the studio five nights a week. Norman would beat us to the studio and be the last one to leave when we left. And he was just around. And, and the one thing I will say that impressed me more than anything, him being the legend that he was and the the songwriter of such fantastic hits as Papa was Rolling Stone, I Wish It Would Rain, so forth, all that stuff. He never one time offered an opinion on anything having to do with production all the time he was there and he if we asked him something he would say something but he never ever offered an opinion i thought that was as classy as a guy as you would ever want to meet hmm. wow and so impressive that he lived in the studio like that <laughs> you know i mean some guys you know they get production credits but it's only a credit you know? Right. No, no, he was he was the real deal. And I like the thing I like the difference in Frank Wilson style and 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 Norman Whitfield style. Frank was like a perfectionist. He wanted every note, every pocket to be just like that. Norman, he went for the feel because he was telling stories about David Rubber. He said he hit some notes on this song. He said, but the notes wasn't right. But the feel was so fantastic. It had to stay. And so that was the difference. And I liked that about Norman, because he, I, I watched him work and do some things. I was like, "Wow, he's right. That that was a feel." And you, a lot of times, you can't you can try to redo it again, but you're never going to recapture that feel. And so, those one of the things I took from from uh, Norman and Frank. I just liked how he liked everything to be uh, in the pocket. So I, I liked 
those things about them. So you, you can steal a little bit from all these these legendary producers, and it helped me and to become what I think I became as a producer. Absolutely. And, you know, Otis, I will never forget first hearing It's All the Way Live on the radio um, mm -hmm. as a teenager, you know, and yep. it just immediately caught me. I bought the 12-inch, bought the album, and um, it just leaped off the airwaves, you know? Um, yeah. Do you remember when you first, you know, heard or came up with that groove and how it felt initially? I mean, did you think it would be a hit? Yeah, we did because Fred Lewis wrote that. He, you know, and he, being a percussionist, he understood rhythm. And so he, you know, brought this track and it was, it was slamming. It was like, man. But the thing about it, you know, uh, Leon, oh, he was producing us uh, for the first uh, two albums. Uh, he, kind of took some things because it was a little Fred not being a great lyricist and in person like that and and melody um Leon kind of helped him tweak it you know and so Leon um went to Dick and, and told him he want you know he should do a writing credit for it and Dick said no you don't get writing credit for that that's Fred's song he said uh, what you did is help him arrange it he said but not enough that you're gonna get writing credit and they, they kind of went at it about it but of course uh Dick Grivy had the last word and as you can look on the credits uh it's Fred Lewis song <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah there's a, a lot in hindsight there's a lot of debates over uh songwriting credits throughout the industry for sure yes absolutely all the time and you know uh, and he did help with the arranging but the basis of the song was bum, 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 bum. you know that's that's the that that's it and that's what fred came up with and he came up with the all the way live but it used to be all the way live but you know we cut that out because it didn't lay as much and those are the kind of things that that leon helped to do to make it into the hit that it was so i give him credit for you know helping make it what it was but it was it was fred fred uh, lewis's song period do you remember first hearing it on the radio and uh, oh yeah how excited you were yeah man that was like you know a kid in a candy store type of stuff you know it's like wow to hear your your record your first record on the on the radio is a feeling and i'm sure every musician who's ever experienced it will tell you it's one of the best feelings you ever have to know that you, you know your, your song is out and it's in the public domain it's 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 amazing and like i said you know you're calling everybody and tell them i just heard the records you know i mean it's it's a really big time in the life of any musician i i bet that's crossed the board you can talk to anybody about their first time hearing their record and i'm sure they'll all say the same thing the one of the be biggest times in my life yeah a lot of guys remember ex where they were what they were doing i mean it's yeah. like a you know one of the highlights yeah. of, of a lifetime really. it is it, yeah. it really is because it's the beginning of what you know uh your your re recording career is going to be and sometimes you know people get their records played and they you know they, they never experience any hits out of them uh and i'm sure that's the downside of it you heard your record on the radio but it didn't do anything so we were the, one of the lucky ones where our record actually became a hit so yeah it was fantastic the beginning of of this lakeside journey so at that point, you know, what was the uh, vision for the group in terms of, you know, the aesthetic and you know, how you present yourselves and how your shows would be? Well, we were a show band. So we um, we came from the clubs. We were, you know, uh, uh, 
taught how to entertain people by working the clubs because, you know, you, we would do clubs five, six days a week. And so, you know, the Tuesdays uh, and Wednesday nights, you know, it may be 10 people in the club with the, with the bartenders and the waitresses. And so you had to give a show. And so we learned how to perform. And by doing that and coming up in those uh, what we call uh, 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 Chitlin Circuit Clubs around the country where we worked, um, that's what taught us to become entertainers. And, you know, and, and I wanted to mention this, too. You know, a lot of people talking about dropping the mic. It's been very popular the last few years where you do something and you drop the mic. Well, first two people I saw drop the mic is in 1975 when I just got with Lakeside. We went up to Seattle, Washington to a club called the Heritage House. It was a very nice club up there. And we did about five days a week up there for a couple of weeks. And our standard for success of a show was standing ovations. If we didn't get a standing ovation, we felt like we didn't do a good job. That's how hot this band was. And so, you know, we would always leave the stage for standing ovations. So usually whoever we, we in the show with certain songs and it'd be either Tommy or Mark. And when they leave, they throw the mic to the floor, drop the mic and leave. So in 1975, that's the first people I saw drop mics and the, and the, uh, st uh, the <laughs> club owners used to get mad because you break those mics, you go pay for <laughs> So we were the first people I saw dropping mics, and that was in 1975. So I don't know when it became popular for everybody else, but uh, for Lakeside, it was 1975. Well, there you have it. You helped yeah. uh, make a lot more money for sure, I think, you know, selling more mics probably. <laughs> yeah, well, it used to get mad too when they did it because they broke a couple in the band had to pay for it, you know. And back in those days when the money wasn't that big, you know, but we, we, we let them do it anyway because it was part of the showmanship. You know, it, it was very dynamic because the crowd would go crazy on stuff like that, you know. So, um, so we would, we would take the hit. They didn't break them that often, but every once in a while, if they got broken, we had to pay for them. You could pop a, a woofer or something too when you do that in the absolutely, pop, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. But it was all part of the show. <laughs> yeah, wow, all part of the show. I also wanted to mention, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about the uh, Frank Wilson album. Uh, that's the first uh, recorded rap to music that I can remember. Everybody else was uh, doing things to poetry, but Timar and I uh, did a rap to a song called Taboo, and. Um, uh, it's on the uh, the very first album. It was just something silly that we came up with, but we actually rapped to the beat of the song. And I, that's the first one I know that happened uh, in terms of the way people, the rap has caught on and become such a huge genre as it is now. Uh, that was 1976. So I'm taking all the credit for Lakeside that, that we have coming because we haven't talked about a lot of this stuff publicly. So since I'm here, I'm, I'm going to talk about everything. Outstanding. Yeah. So go back if you haven't heard that first uh, self-titled Lakeside album and check that one out. T Taboo is the name of the song. Um, so moving forward, uh, you know, you came back with Rough Riders, which was, mm -hmm. um, you know, to me, you know, it was a more uh, complete album. You know, I yeah. think you guys kind of felt it out a little bit and mm -hmm. you were really rolling um, by the time you got to that one with more, um, you know, fleshed out in terms of a full album package. So what, what can you recall about you know, the studio experiences back then and, and the creativity? 
Uh, well, I don't know if anybody ever mentioned to you that you've spoken with from Lakeside. We had a place we called Doo Doo Records on Adams Boulevard. And this is where our like little wood shop where we went, you know, we had our uh, recording equipment up there and it was like, we actually had access to it 24 seven. So we would be up there at all nights of, you know, it was over the top of this uh, liquor store, uh, on Adams Boulevard. And so that's where all the stuff would, would started coming together is when we would be, um, up there working on different tracks and and the thing about it dick um we had a, a listening session for each record and um i want to tell this story on the very first album then i'll, I'll jump to the second one um we did um listening sessions so we had decided as a group on before when we were recording the shot of love album that we were going to split all of the the recording royalties equally, like like our grandfathers, the Ohio players did. If you notice their their albums, everybody got writing credit, and so we had decided to do that for a couple of reasons. So kind of the camaraderie for the band, and also so that we could all grow financially together. And so uh, we did our listening session for Shout of Love and after the songs were picked. I only submitted one song for that particular project, by the way, because I figured, hey, what's the difference? If it doesn't get picked, we all split in the room. You know, anyway, I didn't have to really bring a bunch of uh, songs to the table. So as, as it turned out, that song wasn't chosen, and the songs that were chosen were written by other guys. So we were talking one time in a meeting with Dick, and he got caught wind of uh, what we were doing. He said, man, that's stupid. Why y'all doing that? And we said, well, we're trying to do it so, you know, we could all go together. Man, that's stupid. Everybody should get their own credit. And I think it's, you know, ridiculous that y'all are doing this, blah, blah, blah. And so as it turned out, some of the guys who had songs already chosen, they started to see that as a pretty good idea. And so our... Uh, they decided, well, we're going to do it the way Dick said, and everybody just get their credit. So I was very upset because I knew that there were certain people in the group who wrote better and more than others. And so I told them, I said, guys, I said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, if we do it this way, no bet for me going forward because I'm not going to do it. If we don't do it on this album to start with, then don't come back to me. And I told him, I said, I'm going to have a song on every album. I'm going to co-write a song on every album going forward because I was upset about it because I thought we were making a mistake. And so we did it that way. And the next album, when we had a uh, listening session, I had, uh, let's see, I, did, I had uh, Nine and Teal and... Um, what was the other tune I had on there? All, all in my, my all in my mind. Oh, very good, Scott. I, I have it up here. <laughs> all in my mind. And so after the royalty checks started coming in after that, and they saw the disparity in some of the different songwriters' checks, everybody wanted to go back to that deal. I said, no deal to me. I said, we made you made your bed. We're gonna lie in it for the rest of this career. And so. We actually went back to that on the Untouchables album, and all the songs were written on that album together except Real Love, which I wrote. So um, I, I made my promise true throughout every album. After that, I had a song or more on every album because I thought it was a mistake. And, I, and the reason that we were going to do it, well, see, we had decided to do it for the first two or three albums so we could all grow together financially. And there wouldn't have been that disparity in writing checks, you know, but we you know people didn't see the future they just saw the present and so that's what happened and so from that point on we always had dick would tell us two or three months in advance 
maybe two months that, you know, guys, we're getting ready for a new album. So it was y'all start putting your stuff together because we're having a listening session. And that's kind of how we always go. We would bring our songs, everybody bring their songs, whether they're individual, whether they're collective, and we'd throw them in the pot and we would choose them. And Dick would have the last word on what went on the album. And, and that's kind of how the process went. Well, you mentioned Nine and Toll, and on that record, that song and Pull My Strings are two of my all-time favorite Lakeside tracks, for sure, and they're both on, on that album. Oh, I thought both of them should have been bigger hits. I don't understand why they didn't both you know, go near the top of the chart, but for whatever reason, uh, they made top 40. But yeah. uh, actually, looking back, I thought Pull My, String was, was Pull My Strings was a, was a bigger hit, you know? Uh, they played it. 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 They it was out in Los Angeles. I can tell well, you. Well, you know what, Scott? Interestingly, interestingly enough, they canceled each other out because a lot of the jocks wanted Nine and Teal, and and Dick wanted Pull My Strings. So when he released Pull My Strings as a single, they were playing Nine and Teal. And so that's kind of what happened. And so then finally got back to Dick. Well, we need to put out Nine and Till. So by the time we put out Nine and Till, the single, it had already been played to death. So they kind of canceled each other out. And I think uh, in retrospect, if we would have put out Nine and Till first, we would have had a better shot at uh, Pull My String being a bigger single as well, because that's what the jocks were basically saying. Uh yeah, well, nine and two was like one of those perfect house party jams, you know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Timing is everything, right? Is everything? It really is. And like I said, I, I'm kind of and and because it was my song, I didn't feel good lobbying for it, you know. But I was like, guys, I think that's the that's the single. But because Dick saw pull my string as being the the part two to all the way live because it was written by the same guy Fred Lewis that that's what we should go with but the radio was already telling us they wanted nine and till so um, that's one of those things that happens in the music business sometimes you put out the wrong single and and that's the way it goes. So when the band's recording a track that you happen to write like nine and till, do you uh, did you tend to have a more hands-on approach in terms of how it, it would come out? You know, did you oh, sort of? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because I would do the demos. I play uh, a guitar part on. Uh, I, ba I I wrote the bass line and 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 Marvin played it on uh, Nine and Teal, and I uh, had a guitar part which was separate from what Stevie came up with. And that was one thing I always uh, was amazing to me about Steve. If I wrote something uh, and did guitar on it then he would find another part that had nothing to do with what I was doing, which was complementary to what I did. And he was a he was a master at that. And it would never get in the way of what I'm doing uh, whenever it would be like that. That was one of his, his greatest talents, that I could write something on the guitar and stuff like that and bring it in and play my part. And he just find the part that's like, wow, uh, that's, that's, that's great. I, could, I didn't think of that myself, you know, so he was really good at that. But, yeah, I would always have a bigger hand in the songs that I wrote uh, than, uh, you know, other things that I didn't write. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that to me uh, made Lakeside special and unique at that time was, you know, disco, you know, had such a huge impact on um, all of black music, especially. But it tended to water down some of the funk and mm -hmm. a lot of the groups of that era were kind of pushed to do more disco-y type stuff by the labels. And mm -hmm. um, Lakeside, to me, stayed true to their sound and their vision and really didn't compromise to like disco and just kept in that funk and soul groove 
through it. Yeah. Well, what what happened was if you if you remember, disco happened in the the late seventies, like seventy seven through eighty, and we really didn't start hitting until seventy eight with all the way live, and then we had uh, pull my string and uh, uh, um, we were just talking about it. <laughs> um, Nine and twelve. Nine until, uh, and then in the 80s is when Fantastic Voice came out. So we were like on the back end, so to speak, of the disco craze. So when we hit with Voyage in the 80s, that whole uh, kind of uh, thing had kind of ran its course. There was still some there, but it was mostly going into the, the funk thing that we were doing and other things that were beginning to happen in the early 80s. Right. Well, or some went into more watered down R and B. Yeah, but yeah. you got you guys kept the groove going, which you know was huge for me. There's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so. Please share it with friends and become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at FunkinStuff.net. Thank you very much.